910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. Welcome back. We hope that last week's episode on Ephesians 5, to 24, Paul's imperatives to Christian wives, was helpful. This week, it's the Christian husband's turn as we finish out that famous or infamous passage in Ephesians chapter 5. And just like we did with the wives section, we're going to sort the husband section out by showing why some have an issue with it, the wrong ways it's been interpreted, and then looking at it correctly in context, within the context of the original audience, within the context of the whole chapter, and within the context of the whole letter to the Ephesians, and of course, within the context of other scripture. And again, we'll also pull in some commentary from very credible and sound biblical theologians to sort this out. Okay, so as we did before, let's start by reading the passage. And we will read the entire Ephesians 5, 22 to 33 passage, even though we've already covered some of it, because it's meant to be taken as a whole section. And I'll start. Ephesians 5, 22 to 23 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay, so let's start digging in here. Just like with Christian wives, in verses 25 to 30, Paul is speaking only to Christian husbands, not all men, not Christian women, and not Christian wives. So wives, you've had your turn. Now it's time to butt out and let the husbands have their turn. Paul does finish up this section speaking to both husbands and wives in the last few verses, and we are going to get to that. But first, let's look at how history's contributed to the dislike and the abuse of this passage. We saw some of this in the last episode when we looked at ways sinful men who have misused this passage and other passages similar to it, they use it as an excuse to mistreat and abuse women. So we're not going to rehash all of that, except to say that historic and even present mistreatment and abuse of women by men who see them little more than objects or property is very real even today. Yes, it is. And I'll give one example. Again, this one's from Open Doors USA, the same site that we recounted stories from in the last episode. In many Muslim communities, at some point, men have determined that darker-skinned women are inferior to lighter-skinned women. For women, beauty, or the community's perceived notion of beauty, is one of the only highly valued traits in a woman. 
Lighter skinned women are considered more beautiful and given benefits that darker skinned women are not. And also within many Muslim communities, women, regardless of their skin color, are denied education, any legal right to own property, and are not even given any rights regarding their own children. Their children belong to the father. As their mother, they have no claim on them. He's the only one who has legal guardianship and full custodial rights. It's unbelievable. That's, that still goes on. Mm-hmm. And it's perhaps because of stories like that and so many others, and because of the curse after the fall, that women have had a desire to be the ones in charge instead of letting men, and more specifically their husbands, be the ones to lead. And it's gotten to the point where things have now swung entirely in the other direction, in many places, especially in the West. Rather than trying to correct abuse and mistreatment of women by some men, feminists and liberals have declared war on the entire male population. Men have been attacked for what has been defined as toxic masculinity. And it's now socially acceptable to regularly shame and berate all men for things like they call mansplaining, misogyny, sexism, and homophobia. And the real kicker, Chris, is that these terms have been given new, broader definitions from what they originally meant. They absolutely have. Let's start with toxic masculinity. It's a term that we probably have all heard by now. Here's the general definition. A set of attitudes and ways of behaving stereotypically associated with or expected of men regarded as having a negative impact on men and on society as a whole. The destructive messages associated with toxic masculinity can lead men to feeling entitled to engage in violence against women. And that's the end of the definition. The Green Hill Recovery Center, which is an addiction treatment and education facility in Raleigh, North Carolina, has even broadened the broad definition, the need to aggressively compete and dominate others and encompasses the most problematic proclivities in men. These same male proclivities foster resistance to psychotherapy. And that's the end of their quote. Well, when you hear these definitions, your first thought is probably, yeah, that sounds really bad. And that's intentional. You're, they want you to think that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But notice the ambiguous and vague language that's used. For example, part of the quote, a set of attitudes and ways of behaving stereotypically associated with or expected of men. We said in the last episode that for the most part, men are wired differently than women. They're more analytical than women most of the time. They tend to see things in black and white. Would that be considered toxic? Well, according to that definition, it would be. Right. So acting like a man is toxic masculinity. I mean, that's pretty much what the definitions say. I was just going to say, I was listening to a podcast yesterday. I'm not going to say which one. And they were talking about this very thing. And they were using an example of how uh, some women see men crying as bad too. And they're like, and it was a, a man podcast. And the two men talking were like, what are we supposed to do? <laughs> like there, nothing is... Basically, nothing is okay for men today. Just don't do anything. That's, that's exactly it. that's exactly what it's come down to. Yeah. The Green Hill Recovery Center does give some warning traits of toxic masculinity. And here's what they say. They say some traits of toxic masculinity is unconditional physical toughness, 
physical aggression, fear of emotions, discrimination against people that aren't heterosexual, hyper-independence, sexual aggression or violence, and displaying anti-feminist behavior. Okay, so the Green Hill Center isn't specifically saying that just because men are pragmatic, that makes them toxic. But their traits, again, are vague and ambiguous. Unconditional physical toughness. So are all Navy SEALs toxic? How about Army Rangers or Green Beret Marines? How about soldiers in general or police officers or firefighters? Do we want men defending this country or us to be unconditionally physically tough? Don't we want that? I do. Well, if I'm going to be defended, I do. Yeah. I mean, you know, it makes no sense. I don't want someone who's physically weak defending this country <laughs> or defending me if someone's breaking into my house. If we start telling our male soldiers and firefighters and policemen that their toughness is making them toxic, which is exactly what liberal leaders are doing. That's what they're doing. They don't want the soldiers tough. They don't want the police, the firefighters. They're telling them you can't be tough. So how effective is our country going to be if we go to war or fighting crime? Not very. It just makes no sense. No. It, it's it's futile thinking. It's it's it makes Educated no fools. <laughs> it's the thinking of fools. And that's, that's right. exactly right. And we see more and more of it. And how about that trait of anti-feminist behavior? Like, what does that even mean? Does it mean that thinking women are second-class citizens and property that can be abused and mistreated? Or does it mean believing that there are specific roles that are intended for men and ones for women and they shouldn't try to fill each other's roles? You know, the point of the vague language should be obvious. They use this all the time on yeah. the liberal left. The liberal left wants the definition ambiguous so that they can label anybody they deem worthy as toxic. And in this case, any male that they deem worthy, a toxic male. And along with toxicity, you'll hear many men accused of mansplaining, misogyny, sexism, homophobia, and whatever else. Mansplaining is a fairly new and made up word that means the explanation of something by a man to a woman in a manner regarded as condescending or patronizing. There's more vague language. It's yep. regarded as that. Who gets to decide if an explanation is done in a manner that is condescending and who doesn't get to decide that? I just heard this word used on a TV show where a male doctor was explaining a test result to a female doctor and she accused him of mansplaining. So what constitutes mansplaining? Well, your husband's showing you how to properly treat your car so that you don't end up broken down on the side of the road. Is, is, is that mansplaining? <laughs> your pastor expositing a passage of scripture on a Sunday morning, verse by verse, is that mansplaining? Your elderly father telling you the same story over and over again. Is that mansplaining? The intent of a male speaker is never taken into consideration. The intent isn't. It, they want to be able to define this however right. they want. That's right. It's only the women listener who gets to decide if the tone is patronizing or not. And we're not condoning patronizing or condescending behavior, but there's got to be some common sense here. I, I agree. I agree. 
It's the same with the other traits listed. The traditional definition of misogyny is an ingrained dislike, contempt, or prejudice against women. Sexism is discrimination typically against women solely based on gender. And the original definition of homophobia is a strong dislike or prejudice against gay people. And I'm not even sure why that's thrown in there, but when you look at the original definitions of all three of these things, they are sinful and they are morally wrong. No doubt about it. And I don't think anybody would argue that. However, the definitions have been broadened and changed so that now all three have been attributed to many men who don't deserve it. So instead of taking things, the things we just talked about, misogyny, sexism, and homophobia, instead of taking them as the serious issues they're intended to be, they're now just verbal weapons to hurl at a man or men who happen to disagree with a woman or a feminist point of view. It's yeah, kind of like the term be, racist. Yeah, it could just be that one woman too. That's right. Maybe he dislikes you. Maybe it's not all women he dislikes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, whatever happened to, you know, everybody has different levels of getting their feelings hurt, you know, and that's always been no matter what, not even talking yes. about men and women. You just have to deal with it. I was just listening to a comedian being interviewed and he said, they don't even know what to joke about anymore because everybody's so offended about everything. They're having a lot of trouble coming up with material. And people in the audience make no bones about yelling out hate at them if they say something offensive. So what's society's answer to toxic masculinity? Well, it's healthy masculinity, of course. Healthy or positive masculinity is the idea that men can be emotionally expressive, although not always, as we no. talked about earlier. You can't cry because you never know how that'll get taken. They can have female friends or mentors and express their emotions without feeling emasculated. Sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah, not all the time. Depends on who's listening and who's deciding. Greenhill Recovery Center says, to effectively undo toxic masculinity, accountability needs to be taken by those who perpetrate these negative ideas of man power. Open communication, availability of professional help, and therapy are all critical components of facilitating positive masculinity. Sounds like they want to drum up business. Mm, does. So now you might be thinking that doesn't sound so bad, but when you look at what's considered toxic in today's culture. And basically, as we've been saying, anything traditionally male is considered toxic. And now we're not even sure if that's all there is that's toxic. It should give you pause. Yes, there are absolutely abusive, misogynist, sexist men who need to get help. But saying that all males who exhibit any manly behavior at all need therapy to undo their negative maleness is just putting lipstick on the pig. What they really want is to brainwash men to be more compliant and subordinate to women. Absolutely. That is the end goal. Community.org had a great article on the attack on masculinity. And here's just an excerpt from it. And I'm going to quote, even when the guidelines properly identify some of the challenges facing boys, such as the fact that they're falling behind girls academically, its authors miss an opportunity to deal with actual challenges as opposed to theoretical ones. Why is the educational system more amiable to traditionally female behavior in the classroom than to male behavior? 
At the elementary school level, where most teachers are female and where the supposed pathology of boys, for example, difficulty sitting still and concentrating, often first emerge, such behavior is viewed as early evidence of the disease of traditional masculinity rather than an understandable expression of frustration with a system that doesn't always take the needs of young boys into account. And here's what they go on to say. As to what is causing Johnny to squirm in his chair during social studies or bother his classmates when he's distracted? Easy. Constricted notions of masculinity emphasizing aggression, homophobia, and misogyny may influence boys to direct a great deal of their energy into disruptive behaviors such as bullying, homosexual taunting, and sexual harassment rather than healthy academic and extracurricular activities. And that's the end of the quote. So Chris, you want to interpret that for us? Yeah. The academic world is saying that what they deem toxic masculinity is, is ingrained in our boys. They're born toxic, basically. So to combat that, they're beginning to brainwash as early as elementary school. And the brainwashing's working. It is. Our boys are more and more becoming soft and passive followers. Here's a quote from an article on this subject that encapsulates the sad state for our boys today. And I'm going to quote here. As a boy growing up during the 60s, my role models were men with noble qualities, bravery, moral courage, and sporting prowess. My peers and I looked up to the likes of Eric Liddell, the athlete who put his enduring faith before Olympic glory, Roger Bannister, the runner who achieved the seemingly impossible by breaking a four-minute mile, was also an idol. So, too, was Douglas Bader, an ace fighter pilot in World War II who lost both his legs, yet still made several escape attempts after he was captured in occupied France. Liddell ran for God, while Bannister applied science to achieve his goal before going on to become a great doctor. Bader returned home and became a champion for the disabled. Men such as these weren't just strong and tough. It was the way their sense of honor and academic fervor married with more obvious male attributes that made us want to be like them. Not so today, though, when many of the attributes I grew up admiring aren't just frowned upon, they're being held up as toxic. Yeah, and that's the end of the quote. He's absolutely right. It is. I weep for our boys. I think it's very sad. Yeah. I think it's horrible. And, you know, Rose, wanting the men to be like this is not going to make anything better for women. No, it's not helping at all. When God cursed women to have a desire for their husband, meaning that they're going to want to be in charge, he also said that women would be dominated by their husbands. And this is what we've seen play out in history over and over. However, men have also taken another approach to women wanting to lead, and it's just as sinful as dominating them. They acquiesce. And this is exactly what we saw in the garden way back in Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. That's the end of the scripture. You know, you might wonder why the fall is usually pinned mostly on Adam. For example, Paul says in Romans 5, 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man 
Adam was the leader and protector of Eve, and he failed. Instead of stopping her from eating the fruit, he meekly accepted it from her and ate it. We don't know for sure if Adam told Eve God's instructions about not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I think we can pretty much surmise that he did tell her because she knew they weren't supposed to eat of it. And she misquotes God's instructions that he gave to Adam. So we can probably guess he did tell her. But one thing we know for sure is that Adam knew the command. God told him directly. Yet instead of stopping his wife and following the command God gave him, he just acquiesced and let his wife take charge. And that had to be part of the shame that he felt afterwards. In fact, you can feel his guilt over it when God asks if he ate the fruit from the tree. And right away, he very defensively says, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. So I think some of that was guilt coming out. That's usually what happens when people are guilty is they get defensive. Eve usurped Adam's authority as the head of her and Adam handed it to her by meekly going along and letting her. And I'm just going to throw in here that my husband and lots of other people believe that if a woman will take charge, men, they'll just be lazy and let them. And some men have continued to sin in the same way as Adam up until today. And it's why there are churches who are pastored and led by women. It's why there are women who are heads of their families. It's why there are men who take off rather than take responsibility after their wife or girlfriend gets pregnant. It's why men can walk away from their wife of many years for a younger girlfriend. It's what keeps men from behaving like the men that they were created to be. And this has gotten so much worse because now they have society telling them that the men they were created to be are toxic and they need to be more emotional, sensitive, and effeminate. And the real sad irony is that while men are being feminized, women are becoming more masculine. This is part of the reason God spells out the roles of men and women in scripture. He knows how he created us. He knows how we're wired. He knows what's best for us. And he knows what's best for society, for families, for marriage. So on that, let's start looking at God's words through Paul to Christian husbands. Paul's directive starts out with one of Paul's long sentences that has a lot packed into it. He says in Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, and I'll just repeat it because it's been a while since we read it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So Chris, when you hear these words, is there any indication that Paul is saying, husbands, your wives are your property, do with as you wish, go ahead and abuse them? Or is there any indication that Paul is saying, Look, guys, if your wife wants to take the lead, go ahead and let her. Do we hear Paul condoning either of these extremes? No, we don't. And I'll take this opportunity to say that any abuse of your wife is a spot on the church. Because husbands, this is a picture of Christ in the church and Christ never abuses his church. He also doesn't sit back and let the church run things. No, he doesn't. Thank God he doesn't do that. Thank you, God, he doesn't do that. Yes, exactly. So let's start looking at exactly what these verses really do mean. 
Paul tells Christian husbands their obligation is to love their wife. And this isn't just an emotional love, although hopefully there is that kind of love between husbands and wives. This is an active, never-ending care and protection. And sometimes, as we've talked about in other episodes, Rose, you have to choose to love because you're not always going to have those warm, fuzzy feelings. That's right. You have to choose to love. Husbands are looking out for their wives' well-being. And just as Paul directly speaking to the wives earlier in the letter, this directive to husbands would have been unprecedented. In Ephesus, it was very common for Greek men to have a wife, but their love and affection was reserved for their mistress on the side. That's right. And the love Paul calls Christian husbands to is agape in the original Greek. This is the same word used for how Christ loves his people and loves the church. It's sacrificial love. It's God's kind of love. Now, there's four different Greek words for love. There's eros, which is kind of a sexual love between a husband and wife, but it's more physical. There's storge, which is a familial affection that you have for people in your family. And there's philia, which is friendship or brotherly love. And then there's agape, which is this love. That's sacrificial, unconditional love. Paul's usage of agape love in the husbands directed to love their wives is monumental. Sacrificial love means putting your wife first, regardless of what it costs you. Sacrificial love of your wife means get rid of the mistress. (laughs) Absolutely. That's the first thing. That's the most important, probably. And want to know what this kind of love looks like? It means husbands are to be patient with their wives and speak and act kindly towards them. It means a husband doesn't get jealous of his wife if she's really good at something or she's smarter than he is or she's successful at her job. It means that he doesn't constantly tell her how great he is or how successful he is. He's not arrogant. He's not rude. He doesn't get angry when he doesn't get his own way and he doesn't try to manipulate her to get his own way. He doesn't resent her for past offenses. He isn't silently happy when she messes up. And if she shows him that he's wrong in something, he doesn't get defensive. He's correctable and teachable because truth is what matters most to him. Most of all, he stays with her through everything, no matter how tough the situation is. That's what Jesus did for the church. He loves her and he continues to see hope and joy for their future together. Now, some of you probably shaking your head right now thinking there isn't a husband alive that could manage to do all that. And you'd be correct. You might also be thinking that we're crazy even suggesting that a husband has to do all that. Well, we aren't the ones suggesting it. While Chris was saying all that, did something ring vaguely familiar to any of you? Because it should have. Because what Chris just said is right out of 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 7, the love chapter, the passage that's most read at weddings. And the word for love in that passage is agape, just like the word Paul uses in this Ephesians passage. So Paul is telling Christian husbands to show their wives sacrificial love. And in 1 Corinthians 13, he details exactly what that love looks like. All the things, Chris, that you just said. And wives, before you stick this passage in your husband's face and say, get to work, remember two things. First, Paul's words in Ephesians 5 are only for Christian husbands. It's between them and God, not you. That's right. 
just like the directive to Christian wives was not meant for husbands to demand. This is the directive for Christian husbands. It's not meant for wives to demand. To quote Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones again, this time addressed to Christian wives, and I'm quoting him here, if he's not loving you this way, all you can do is be the kind of wife that would be a joy to lead and trust God with his. That's the end of the quote. And the second thing wives need to remember is that that first Corinthians passage is how believers are to treat each other. So if you and your husbands are both believers, you're obligated to treat him in this same way. That's right. And understand, we are talking about normal marriages and all this. We are not talking about marriages where there's abuse of any kind in any of this. And we just want to make that point. Christian marriage in scripture is not an isolated thing. It encompasses agape love, like the passage in 1 Corinthians 13. It encompasses displaying the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, which by the way, the love in the fruit of the spirit is agape. So is there any husband capable of perfectly loving his wife like this? Only one, and that's Jesus. The only one who can love with agape love, truly agape love, is Jesus. And it's exactly how he loves his bride, the church. Like you said, Chris, the love of a Christian husband is to reflect the love that Jesus has for his church. And Paul affirms this in this passage when he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Yeah, and the reasons husbands are to lead their wives and love them with agape love is the same reason that Christ leads and loves his bride. And I'm going to quote here, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And that's the end of the scripture. The goal of the Christian husbands is to help their wives become everything that she's meant to be in Christ. Now, as we said, wives don't need their husbands or any other man to stand in the gap between them and Jesus. They're their own person. Their salvation and sanctification is their own. However, a Christian husband is to nurture his wife so that she can flourish and transform to be more like Christ by his godly leadership. Exactly what Christ does for the church. And I'm going to say, if you're abusing your wife, there's this isn't going to happen no and that's that even verbal abuse or you know emotional abuse we're talking about it's not you're going to stun her sanctification yeah and you're going to have to answer for it (laughs) and to relay that to the church christians we're talking about it if the church is preaching false truth or not preaching the gospel or in any way putting a blight on the gospel they're going to stunt the growth of their congregants or if they are abusive in their leadership. That's right. Going to stunt the growth. It's going to stunt the congregants growth. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And again, this directive to Christian husbands is never meant to bring superiority into marriage. It's meant to bring love and servitude of Christ into every relationship, especially into marriage. Here's what Paul Washer's take on this is. He said, and I'm quoting it, as the head of my home, I have the right to serve everyone else in my home and to go to bed more tired than anyone else in my home. It means I work harder than anyone else in my home. True authority means every decision you make, you are not in the equation. 
The equation is, what can I do to bring God glory? What does my wife need to become everything she's meant to be in Christ? And that's the end of his quote. I love that. And I wish more men would take that into consideration, especially going into marriage. And I love Kevin DeYoung's take on it too. In Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul tells husbands to love their wives six times in eight verses. You would almost think Paul is trying to make a point. The evangelical world has twisted itself in knots about the verses just prior to Paul's admonition to husbands in which the wife's responsibility to submit to her husband is commanded. And yet, Paul spends only three limited verses on that subject, but devotes fully nine verses to husbands loving their wives. We spend too little time thinking, teaching, and encouraging Christian husbands to love their wives. And that's the end of the quote from Kevin DeYoung. But I love that. Yeah. It's the right take on it. I agree. And there are so many good sermons out there on this kind of thing. Alistair Begg has a great sermon. Martin Lord Jones has some great sermons on this and very I, subject. And yeah, and I love Kevin DeYoung's take on abuse. Yes. Which I think we yeah. mentioned in another episode. So great sermons you can go listen to. We talked about last week how John Piper and Wayne Grudem originally got husbands leading their wives, or as they said, all men leading all women, horribly wrong. And again, I want to just say, we don't know where they stand today. I don't know if they still believe that or if they've come around, but we've seen this attitude has caused mistreatment and abuse of women throughout history, even in the church. And like you said, Chris, that's a blight on the church that it's been done. Thankfully, in the late 80s, to address what this Ephesians 5 passage and other passages that talk about husbands and wives mean, several evangelical leaders formed what's called the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And they came out with the Danvers Statement in December of 1987. We mentioned it last week, but I'm just going to quote a little bit from it. It says, the fall introduced distortions into the relationships between men and women. In the home, the husband's loving, humble leadership tends to be replaced by domination or passivity. The wife's intelligent, willing submission tends to be replaced by usurpation or servility. It goes on to say that redemption in Christ aims at removing the distortions introduced by the curse. In the family, Husbands should forsake harsh or selfish leadership and grow in love and care for their wives. Wives should forsake resistance to their husband's authority and grow in willing, joyful submission to their husband's leadership. And that's the end of the quote. And this statement was written by a lot of very credible theologians. So thankfully, the vast majority of those in biblical churches rightly understand Paul's words to Christian husbands here in Ephesians 5. That's a great thing. Yes. <laughs> so, okay. So let's move on to the next verses that are addressed to both husbands and wives because they are a commentary on marriage in general and how it's a reflection of Jesus and the church. And I'll reread them again. Ephesians 5, 31 to 33 says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Paul shows us this is exactly how God designed marriage. The two shall be one flesh. 
Husbands and wives should be a team. They should be on the same page, working together for the same goal for their family. The husband, as the head of the household, is responsible for the well-being of his wife and family. The wife, as the support system, should provide her husband with what he needs to be the best version of himself to achieve their mutual goals for their family. When one wins, they both win. This kind of being one flesh is only possible if there's an unwavering level of trust and respect between a husband and a wife. You know, God deems earthly marriage so important that he tells Moses in Deuteronomy 24, 5, when a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. And in my old church, any guy who got married was not allowed to serve on any committees or in leadership for a year after he got married because of this. He was to concentrate on his marriage. I think, you know, it gives me goosebumps to think that your old church did that. I think that is so important. I think it's so important. Yeah, I, I do just, tell. I really think it's fantastic. Um, and I think it's a great model. And I'm, I'm, it just gives me goosebumps to think about it. Paul says the mystery of marriage is profound and refers to Christ and the church. It's a picture of Christ and the church. That's why if you're abusing your wife, it's horrible. It was to show the world about how Jesus treats his bride. Ah, it just makes me angry. So we can learn a lot about what marriage is supposed to be by looking at Jesus and the church. Did Jesus set his love on the church because we deserved it? Nope. Is his love for the church conditional on us keeping our end of the deal? Loving him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Of course not. The answer to all of those things is a resounding no. And what's the church's responsibility to Jesus? Well, is the church commanded to obey and follow Christ as its leader? Is the church called to trust and respect the leadership and love of Christ? Well, the answer to those questions is, again, a resounding yes. That's right. And that's exactly why Paul ends this section with, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And here's Ligonier Ministries' take on this. Christian marriage is a call for two people to set aside their own preferences in the interest of living before the face of God in such a way that shows the world why the Christ church bond is the most beautiful relationship in all creation. And it's a call for churches to do everything in their power to teach us how to fulfill our respective marital roles, as well as to intervene when gross violations of the marriage covenant occur among us. That's the end of their quote. I love that quote. I, I love all the quotes from today's episodes. And I agree. I think that's a good place to end for today. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to leave us a comment in the comment section or send us an email at Proverbs910Ministries at gmail.com. And if you're in an unhealthy or abusive marriage, we urge you to seek help from your church or an outside source if your church is not that option. God's design for marriage has never, ever included abuse of any kind. And thanks for joining us today. Have a blessed day, everybody. Mm -hmm.